Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another week of Lost in Science. Great to have you with us. My name is Claire and this week, a bit of science, a bit of fantastic news this week. The Bujibim eel traps have got UNESCO heritage listing. So if you don't know what the Bujibim eel traps are... You will explain it to us. I will explain it to you. Pretty much in southwestern Victoria, there is evidence of Indigenous built eel traps and also habitation from 6,000 years ago. That's amazing. It is absolutely incredible. So I'm going to tell you all about that and the journey that they've been on. Chris, what do you have for us this week? Well, I am going nowhere near as far back in time. I'm looking at 100 years ago. We discussed there's a lot of like anniversaries going on. This one's kind of a bit flexible because it's, uh, <laughs> the time period is a bit flexible. Uh-huh. But it's basically 100 years since the Spanish flu, one of the biggest epidemics in history. And so since Australia is currently in the midst of a particularly bad flu season, I thought it's timely with the centenary and all that to look back at what happened with the Spanish flu, why it was so bad. Is this perhaps because you recently acquired the flu or maybe, I mean, I won't say the man flu because that's a bad joke. Well, I mean, it basically was, <laughs> I guess, the man. It wasn't the actual, I don't think I had influenza, like proper influenza. Yeah, I think it was okay. just a bad cold. Right, um, yeah, okay. But I, I, I was out last week because of my ailment. Oh. Um, but I am back with slightly croaky voice yeah. to dwell on the, the topic. <laughs> Still talking about it. That's, that's, that's the <laughs> symptoms of man flu right there. But like, yeah, I think Stu has us all beaten. He's in, he is going to be with us today as well. He's going back a billion, nearly a billion years to, all right, okay. to the oldest fossilized fungus found forever. <laughs> Nice alliteration. Thank you. Great. Um, and yeah, and so he's going to be talking about this new fossilized fungus and what it tells about the evolution of fungi and how they are perhaps more related to us than you might have expected. Well, that fungi and others later in the show. So wonderful news this week. Australia has a new UNESCO protected world heritage site in southwestern Victoria. It's over 6,600 years old, which is older than the pyramids. And it is the only UNESCO site in Australia to be recognised solely for its Indigenous cultural heritage value. Fantastic. So if you haven't heard of the Bajibim site on the land of the Gujimara people before, um, well, uh, start listening up. Don't go anywhere. 
because you're probably going to hear a lot more about it in the coming weeks, months, years, now that it is receiving the recognition internationally that it deserves. Um, now, Bajibim in the Gujimara language means high head, which it is. So it's an extinct volcano. Oh. Yeah. Last time it erupted was about 30,000 years ago. Right. Okay. So a good amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so obviously long before these eel traps were built. That's right. Long yeah. before the eel traps were built. But it is extremely significant that, yeah. that the type of rock there, which is which is basalt, so what that eruption did was create all these lava oh. flows and all these sort of channels and like places around around Budgie Bin. So um, you've got this uneven sort of basalt ground where, where water can pool and that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. So from these uneven channels and this basalt, the Gujimara people were able to block dam walls and construct uh, stone features across the lava flow. And in doing that, they were able to develop these complex systems of artificial ponds. And these ponds and the channels would hold floodwaters whenever there was a lot of rain. And when there was a lot of rain and you get floodwaters into these places that you didn't normally get uh, water into, it would also direct eels into these spaces. We've talked before on the show about the the complex life cycle of the eels, how they spawn in the sea and they mature in inland waterways and that kind of stuff and then swim back out. They do, yeah. They travel thousands of kilometres, don't Mm. they? They go all the way up to the Coral Sea to spawn and then the tiny little eels make their way back on their own back to um, their ancestral ancestral, um, homes. Yeah, Um, which is in, which, you know, in this particular instance is in Lake Honda. Um, which is in the is in Bujibim National Park. So yeah, so by developing this sort of complex system of these artificial ponds, um, it allowed the Gujimara people to direct the eels into the ponds, and they were able to be held there um, for a long for long term and develop into di- different stages of growth. Okay. So you had eels at different stages of growth. Oh, so um, they wouldn't they weren't just like trapped there to catch, and they were trapped there and and farming them. Farmed, yeah, yeah, aquacultured. Yeah, aquacultured, indeed, indeed. There's a word for that, the wet farming mm. that is. <laughs> Fish farming, indeed. So these holding ponds allowed eels to grow in a restricted and protected area and be available to the people who were living close by most of the year. So it provided a food source and an all-important, I guess, protein source to the Gujimara people long-term. In addition, there's also lots of these C-shaped basalt block structures close to where the eel trap channels are. Oh, yes. Yeah. So on average, they're around three to four metres and they represent house foundations. So archaeologists and scientists and Gujimara elders think that as these C-shaped basalt block structures are in sort of like these um, clusters, that they might be clustered into villages. So they might actually be um, be housing, okay. permanent housing for where where the farmers, where the fish farmers yeah, I mean, it's be there were for living. Long term with your, your eels, like um, tending to your eels and 
Yeah, you need somewhere to live and you need somewhere that's going to be able to stand up to the elements that southwestern Victoria is going to throw at you. Exactly. Which is quite a lot of elements. That there are. There are at least four of them. There are at least four of them. Indeed. Yeah, what we have is evidence of permanent settlement in the form of villages and this incredible engineering and aquaculture development of natural resources with the eel traps. So radiocarbon dating of tiny charcoal fragments within the sediments has showed that one of the channels, one of the eel channels, was built at least, as I said before, 6,600 years ago, while close by there was a dam wall that was added around 500 years ago. Okay. So this means that these eel traps, this, this land has been in constant use for a very long time. Yeah. Are, they, um, is it, are they still functional? Do you know? Do we know? Since European colonisation, that landscape has changed quite a lot. Okay, yeah. So there was a lot of sort of restoration that had to be done on this okay. land in the last sort of like 30, 40 years to sort of actually bring to light what was underneath yep. and what, what that aquacultural engineering looked like, yeah, okay. you know, before colonisation. Yeah, so one channel was built 6,600 years ago while the dam wall was added 500 years ago. So not only does this mean that the budgie beam eel traps are the world's oldest known stonewalled fish trap, um, but also the longest used fish trap um, anywhere in the world, which is quite incredible as well. These large-scale fishing facilities and, you know, the aquacultural pond really challenges many traditional representations of Aboriginal people as simple hunter-gatherers. So the Gujimara people actively changed the way that water flowed and engineered their landscape to increase availability and reliability of eels as a resource and a food source for them long-term. So it is um, an incredible accomplishment that after a 17-year campaign by the Gujimara community, and archaeologists and scientists and advocates um, that the landmark decision was announced this week and was announced in Azerbaijan. So the community went over to Azerbaijan and um, and it was announced at UNESCO over there. So it is now under one of the highest levels of protection on the UNESCO list, list alongside Kakadu and the Great Barrier Reef and part of our engineering and agricultural or aquacultural history over 6,600 years in the making and a source of pride for all Australians. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we are currently in the midst of a bad flu season. Um, so far in Australia, nearly 300 people have died of influenza this season. 
That is a shocking number. But is that unusual compared to previous years? It is higher than than normal. It does fluctuate from year to year, but yeah, this does seem to be a particularly a particularly bad year. Because it's a particularly virulent strain of flu. Yeah, well, it, different flus seem to act in different ways. Um, it's you know, it's not entirely known. I suppose it depends on people's. Actually, we might get into some of that in this story. There may be some clues in this story, because it is a hundred years since the pretty much since the, the what is popularly known as the Spanish flu. Um, that actually started in 1918 and was worse in 1918, which is like 101 years ago. But it lasted until about 1920, so it still counts. 1919 is 100 years ago, was still in the midst of this flu epidemic. It's a pretty ominous sort of um, anniversary. Chris. It is. It's not, a, it's not a great one, but because I mean, this is possibly the, the deadliest pandemic in history. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. It infected 500 million people. It killed between 50 and 100 million people. So in terms of sheer wow. numbers, it would probably be the highest um, because the because population... Because the population... Was small yeah. Groups, yeah. So this was about 3 to 5% of the global population that was killed. In Australia, wow. nearly 12,000 people died. So even though so even though what we're going through is a bad flu season, it's nothing compared to, to that particular outbreak. Um, now, it did not actually originate in Spain. Uh, where it came from is still unknown and hotly researched, but um, it spread in Western Europe near the end of World War One. So when they say Spanish flu, are they just taking a punt at what a... Okay, so it started to spread near the end of World War One, and it was kind of really affecting morale, and a lot of people were dying on the battlefield. So your your powers who were involved in the war, like Germany, the UK, France, even the United States, all tried to minimise publicity. You know, they didn't want to they didn't want to to bring things down with their war effort. Spain, however, was neutral, and so it was freely reported, and so there was a impression that Spain was particularly hard hit, hence it became known as the Spanish flu. Right, but it was all a marketing There was a marketing cover, thing, yeah, yeah essentially. Um, but it spread everywhere, like because what happened, it was affecting the soldiers in World War One, and when they went back to their home countries, um, it spread around the world, and including to, like... You know the uh, the Arctic um, and remote Pacific islands where it took a particularly hard toll. So yeah, it went it went everywhere pretty much. Now one of the most remarkable things about this particular flu was that was who was affected by it. So normally with um, the flu, you get what they consider a U-shaped mortality profile, where basically the very young and the very old are the most vulnerable to it. But this one had a W-shaped curve, where so young adults around the age of 28 to 30 were hit the hardest. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is, this is one of the big puzzles of this kind of it seems like a clue to why it was, so, it was so bad. Now, um, there are many theories as to why. Certainly, when you look where it was spread, it was, you know, young adults on the battlefield. But this W-shaped curve wasn't just seen among them. It was seen in other places where, where it arrived. Um, there's also the idea that um, the, the conditions that, that um, patients were kept in encouraged more bacterial infections. And I don't know, for some reason, this... this you know, these particular people were the most to, to get it. And so the bacterial infections then was what killed them. Um, there's even a suggestion that aspirin poisoning was a contributing factor to the mortality of this flu. Um, that aspirin was used to treat it and they perhaps overdosed on aspirin. Um, but yeah, as I said, there are many theories about why it was so bad. Uh, one of the most popular theories came after the virus was recovered from an Alaskan victim who was buried in the Arctic permafrost. 
So um, what they this happened about, uh, I think, 2005. Um, the genetic code was sequenced from the virus, um, but then they also infected laboratory animals with it, and they found that it caused a cytokine storm. Cytokine being part of the immune system. Yeah, they're, they're peptides, which are small proteins, and they're, they're used for signaling by the immune system. Yeah, you're right. So basically, it's an overreaction of the immune system. And so the theory is this is why the young fit people were the hardest hit, because they had the, the strongest immune systems. Um, but there was a paper published in January this year in the journal Evolution, Medicine and Public Health that questioned that idea on the basis, well, one of the re- arguments was that it was a very narrow age range that seemed to be affected and saying there's no good reason to suggest that 28-year-olds, for instance, had much stronger immune systems than 18-year-olds or 38-year-olds. You know, why was it around that particular age group was the worst hit? Um, and so instead they proposed an idea, uh, something called original antigenic sin, <laughs> which I kind of like because it had a good name. That's cool. So, okay, so basically the way we classify flu, right, the flu virus, is um, the different strains of virus is um, these H and N numbers. You may have heard that, you know, like, um, uh, you know, H3N1 or H1N1. This kind yeah, of thing. yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So these refer to uh, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase glycoproteins found on the outside of the virus, Right. They're particular types of proteins. So proteins like signaling proteins or yeah, something. Yeah, the type of proteins that's, that's on the outside. On the outside. Yeah. Okay. And there are 18 different of the H types and 11 of the N types have been okay. identified. But obviously they're very important because they're in the name. Yeah, well, they're, they're ways of classifying them. So they, they mm. found these, these 18 different H and 11 different Ns and they're found in like in not only humans but also in like birds and other animals. Uh, now, the 1918 flu was H1N1, which is the same type as the swine flu you might remember from 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, another anniversary. That was 2009. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they classify them, what, the strains according to these H&N numbers, and they can put them into two groups. So, um, you know, H1N1 is, happens to be in group one. Um, now, the idea of the original antigenic sin is that your immune system responds to the first flu virus that you're exposed to when you're a baby or a young child, and then when you encounter a new virus, your immune system basically repeats the same antigenic response to that first infection. Um, but that only works if the virus is from the same group as the first one you encountered. If it's from the other group, then your immune system immune response is not so, so good. And it just so happens that about 28 years before 1918, around about 1890, there was another pandemic, a Russian flu, that is believed to be H3N8, which would be in group two, so the other group. So the 1918 flu was in group one, this Russian flu was in group two. And so the idea then is that the, um, the people who were babies, essentially, around when the Russian flu came through, were particularly vulnerable to the new Spanish flu when it emerged in 1918. Right, okay. Look, um, look. the numbers work out, but it is just another theory, okay? So, you know... The we'll... only way to find out is to release that, <laughs> to release the well, flu let's, again. Let's hope we don't do that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, since this was a particularly bad flu pandemic, um, we can hope that there won't be another one like that for a while. But this is why it's important to, to get vaccinated if you have the opportunity. Get the flu vaccination because yeah. there's not, not everybody can, so you're protecting those people, right? I mean, it's a bit late in the season now, 
um, but it's still not too late necessarily. It does take a while for it to work, but you know the fact that the the flu is still doing so bad in Australia, you know, it's like worth considering. But even so, the back the vaccine isn't one hundred percent effective, so it's still important to take other precautions. Things like yeah, There's stay away next... from work when you're sick, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, wash your hands, cough into your elbow, you know, the the vampire cough where you. You know the vampire cough where you cough in your elbow? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Only works for coughing. Don't try it for sneezing. Um, don't ask me how I know. That's a different type of <laughs> monster. That's a different type of monster. Anyway, um, yeah, so be careful of the flu, um, but it is not quite as bad as the 100-year-ago Spanish flu. are trying to measure the age of fossilized fungi you might be surprised to find there's not much room for error oh come on straight off what, the bat lead with a pun yeah wow yeah, yeah. normally we backload those puns but yeah i thought i'd break it out early love it um, crashing through the roof mycelium of puns <laughs> It's, I mean, he's a, just such a fun guy, isn't <laughs> yeah, he? Yeah, he is. He, but it is actually he's true. the mould, really. <laughs> All right, okay. It, yeah, is, sorry. It, is, it is actually true. The oldest confirmed fungus may be about to lose its crown as a new fossil found in the Arctic region of Canadian Territory may be almost twice as old, which is a big jump for fossils. So what, you might say? Well... <laughs> we weren't hey, saying we're that. that. Yeah, I can, see, I can see your faces, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Well, it is actually an important uh, evolutionary question as fungi and where they fit into the so-called tree of life is quite important as far as animal and human life is concerned in evolutionary terms. So the conventional version of the colonization of land by living things suggested that simple single-celled organisms, prokaryotes like bacteria, were on land very early in Earth's biological history. But complex cells or eukaryotes climbed out of the water much later, and complex multicellular life forms arrived even later still. Yeah, okay. So fungi might seem like simple organisms, and many are single-celled, things like yeasts, Mm -hmm. which just float around and turn sugar into alcohol. Thanks, yeast. Thanks, yeast. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep, Keep it up. But many are complex macrofungi, which we see forming fruiting bodies like toadstools and mushrooms and all of those things that, you know, especially in autumn in various parts of Australia, they're popping up all over the place. Don't eat anything you don't know what it is, by the way. But or these, if you know what it is, what you know it is is poisonous. Well, don't eat it then either. Yeah. yeah. But these were long considered part of the plant kingdom. They don't move. They just sort of grow out of the ground or they grow out of dead things. And they were considered sort of an oddity, sort of like a, a bacteria above their station. They didn't really, weren't really considered to be higher evolved life forms. But more recently, genetic analysis of fungi showed that they were actually no closer related to plants or bacteria than humans are. And that fungi branched off from a common ancestor with the animals far later than 
any common an- ancestor with plants or or bacteria. Right. So we're, we're actually more closely related to fungi than we are to plants or bacteria. I'm not overly surprised by that. There, there are some interesting aspects of fungi development and growth but they are they're quite different to to plants and fungi are more related to us than they are to plants yeah wow yeah we have a much more recent common ancestor with fungi wow so <laughs> Chris is no, not I'm, no, cause, no, I'm surprised no, well okay because mushrooms was. are a bit meaty is well, that yeah, why yeah well like Easter Sullivan's meat for vegetarians yeah that was the, the advertising slogan but I think the way the stew put it was that we were closely related to fungi than we are to plants and I didn't think we were that closely related to plants so I was yeah, kind of but going, if you no, think well, about it the yeah, other way yeah that's yeah. true yeah yeah so Fossils had been found that showed multicellular fungi were present on land up to about half a billion years ago, around 470 million years ago, there was multicellular fungi on the land. But these new fossils from Arctic Canada put multicellular fungi on land possibly twice as long ago as those fossils, around 900 million to 1 billion years ago. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, And these are not single-celled yeasts. These fungi are shown to have multi uh, to have branching structure of filaments, which is what modern uh, macro fungi have, and, and many of the fungi actually produce mycelia or filaments that grow through. Right, um, so they've they've got lots of cells, lots of cells all joined together, all, joined all together, acting as one all organism, as, one. as well as evidence of a particular protein called chitin, which fungi and animals can both produce, but yeah. only multicellular mm. ones. Chitin being, as the, you would know from your lobster shells. That's right, crab shells, insects. Exoskeletons, yeah. So the newly discovered fossil fungus called Urosphera giraldei has also answered a question that has puzzled geneticists. Why did fungi seem much older genetically than the fossil record suggested? Their their, uh, genetic clock said they were about a billion years old, but none of the fossils were that old. So it was a very confusing puzzle for geneticists, Mm. which now may have an answer that they actually were that old all along. Wow. so the history of land colonization may not be a story of plants and animals, but of fungi eating dead bacteria, which paved the way for a buildup of soil, which meant that plants could then colonize the land, which then animals had to come out and eat the plants. <gasps> it's all fungi's fault. It's all thanks to fungi. So the bacteria were there first then, were they? Yeah, but yeah. They, are, they are not complex uh, cells. No, they're not. They're, they're, they're not. Sim- very simple cells compared to the eukaryotic cells. Mm. But look, I just think it's very important that fungi are a group of underestimated organisms that could rewrite evolutionary history, and that's nothing to truffle with. Spore humour, that is.
And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science this week. Thanks for listening. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can shoot us an email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. Maybe you're a Twitter fan. You can find us at Lost in Science 1. Or if you like Facebook, find us at Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can always just forget about all that and listen in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.